going to take some time in God's Word together. We've been studying through the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, we're in chapter 4, uh, beginning with a section uh, with verse 21. I, I've been saying this several times as we've been studying through the book of Mark and trying to lay this out, and I, I hope it doesn't sound too redundant, but I just want to keep reminding you this what this is all about so we can stay on track and keep tracking well together that Mark's aim is that we would know Jesus. He's really trying to introduce us and present Jesus for, for who he is. So the title for the series is Knowing Jesus. That's the desire that you and I would know him. And, you know, a lot of weight in that word know. Know him for who he actually is, for who he claims to be, for who he is presented to us in the scriptures as. So not know him uh, in, in a way that I dream up or you think of or how we prefer, anything like that. No, it's actually like, let's take a fresh look. Who is he? Who did he claim to be? Who do the scriptures say that he is? So that we know him in that way. Because unless you know him as he is, nothing else is going to make sense thereafter. You know, Christianity's not going to work after that. Following him is not going to make sense. It's not going to work if you don't know him. And really, it's in truly knowing who he is. Son of God, all-powerful, full authority, sent from God, human, deity, all together, all that knowing who he is, that's, that's what produces the right response, which is Mark's second aim, know Jesus and then be his disciple. So follow him. And it's only in recognizing Jesus for who he is that you can truly and rightfully, in a way that he's calling us to, Follow him, become his disciple, surrender to him, make yourself his student, make him your Lord and, and surrender to him and say, my greatest joy is following you, knowing you, doing what you command. Knowing Jesus, becoming his disciple equals living in God's kingdom. The Bible talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and we've seen this phrase introduced in our study here and so following Jesus truly being his disciple means we live life in God's kingdom he has become the Lord he is the king and now we live as citizens surrendered to this king but this kingdom operates by a whole new set of principles it's a different kind of kingdom it's unlike as they say the kingdom of this world it is different it operates differently it has different principles and sometimes oftentimes the principles of the kingdom of God are at times entirely opposite to the principles of the kingdom of this world in the kingdom principles like take up your cross lay down your life set aside your high status and personal ambitions and serve take on the form of a servant forsake all and follow christ give generously give all that you have to those in need no longer live to please yourself these are concepts of the kingdom but as i list them um, you're probably thinking uh, none of these are too inviting are they give up your life die take up your cross give everything away serve others set your own ambitions aside these, these are not things that are naturally appealing to us but there's more to these sort of rules of the kingdom well in and of themselves those things 
do not hold much appeal, the principles of the kingdom lay these things out in such a way that they are appealing. Because there's more to the story than just this list of, okay, lay down your life, pick up your cross, give everything away, seek to serve others. No, in the kingdom, the principles begin to lay out. We find our lives by laying them down. We come to know greater wealth through sacrificial giving. We obtain true greatness by becoming the servant of all. So you see the difference between sort of these rules of the kingdom and these principles of the kingdom that fill them out and give explanation and give some color to and, and, and give more form to, to the point that you find out now all of a sudden these very things that Jesus is calling us to as his disciples actually become appealing, even joyful, because we know something about these things. I couldn't help think I was walking in this morning a scene in Princess Bride. So Inigo and Wesley are starting their famous sword fight on the top of the, uh, what, Cliffs of Despair. And they start their sword fight and they're going and they're fighting and the duel begins, but all of a sudden, Inigo is smirking. Why are you smiling? It's because I know something. Because I know something that you don't know. Of course, he's fighting left-handed, and he says, I'm not left-handed. I was debating all week about, should I entitle this sermon, Fun Facts About the Kingdom? And I thought, if I said Fun Facts About the Kingdom, you might think I'm being kind of trite and downplaying things that are very serious. So I thought, let's be more spiritual. Glorious truths about the kingdom that make the Christian life fun. My hope is we're going to look at four principles of the kingdom. My desire and my prayer and my hope in looking at these things that we would be in a little bit like Inigo, I know something. I know something that you don't know. I know something about these principles so that while Christ is calling us to follow him, while Christ is calling us to lay down his lives, there's truths about the kingdom that make these actions, these lifestyles, enlivening to our lives. They make it exciting. They, they, they fill it with purpose. It, it's not just dying, sacrificing, laying down, serving. There's so much more going on here. And this is what we want to press into as we look at some of these principles so that th this would be my hope for us as a church. That when we see our one another practicing living in the kingdom, laying down our lives to serve one another, giving generously, giving to help others, setting aside our own preferences in, in deference to others, things, things like this, that, that we, we wouldn't be running, oh, with caution. It's like, oh, be careful, don't give away too much. Oh, we don't want you to work too hard, don't, you know. No, in, instead, we'd almost like, like, we're, like we're winking at each other. I, I know what you're doing. I see what's going on here. 
I know what you know. I know about the kingdom. I see what you're doing. And all I see is greater glory and greater reward in what's going on here. That, that's the kind of atmosphere that I think the kingdoms of the principle should cultivate in our lives. To explain what life in the kingdom is like, Jesus uses parables, little stories. Sometimes no more than a sentence, sometimes a few sentences. Simple, very simple stories. Human analogies, natural world illustrations and metaphors that, that, that give color to and explanation to what life is like in his kingdom. In his kingdom, when you and I are surrendered to this Lord, living our lives with first allegiance to him, we are living in his kingdom. First, first parable, the lamp belongs on the stand. Let's read it together, verse 21. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Fun fact about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is meant to be seen, meant to give light like a lamp. Simple illustration, simple parable, simple metaphor. This is important and important in this context because so far, if you were here last week, there's been a lot of talk about secrets of the kingdom. There's been talk about who can understand, who does understand, who doesn't understand, who has ears, who doesn't have ears. To you it's been given, to them it's not been given. And you might get the impression as you read through this section that we've been studying through that, that Jesus has sort of set out to form this secret society, those who are in and those who are out. And some get let in on the secret handshake, and others are kept out. Jesus gives us this parable to refute that, to make sure that's not what he's communicating here. It's also helpful because at times, oftentimes, identifying with Jesus can be dangerous. You aligning your life with Jesus can get you into trouble. That trouble can tempt you and cause you to hide, to withdraw, to stay secretive about your faith. Now just a little side note, as we study through the book of Mark, there are some strange times where Jesus is actually telling people, be quiet, don't tell anybody about who I am. It seems very strange because we know, if you have any general knowledge of the entire Bible, it's precisely what we're supposed to do as Christians, and yet we see these odd situations where Jesus is like hushing people and telling them, don't tell anybody. We know that uh, early on we saw the demons speaking out and declaring the reality of who Jesus is, and he forbade them from speaking. In chapter 1, he cleansed a leper, and after that leper was healed, Jesus, it says, sternly charged him, say nothing to anyone. A strange response. In Mark 8, we're going to come to a key verse there 
where the disciples come to terms with the truth. This sort of ends the first section, the first half of Mark, with this, with this climax of Jesus asking the question, who do you say that I am? That's what everything has been about up to that point. And Peter pipes up with this great answer that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And after the disciples come to this realization, this full realization of who Jesus actually is, it says, he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. Now, the key to understanding these sort of odd verses that seem a little confusing when we read them is to understand the timing of where they took place. Because at that point in chapter 8, everything shifts. And from that point, we start looking to the cross. And what's, being, what's taking place in the book of Mark is this reality that unless you know Christ as the suffering servant, unless you get this part of Christ that he's going to the cross, that he's going to lay down his life for the sins of the world, without that you don't know who Jesus actually is. So on the front half, you get glorious, wonderful teaching, authoritative, all-powerful, able to heal, talks to wind and waves, and they listen to him. A grand picture of who Jesus is. But he's saying, don't tell anybody yet, because you don't have the whole picture. Once he gets to the cross, once we're past the cross, we have resurrection, ascension, we have the Spirit poured out, all bets are off. Open the floodgates. Now, church, it's time to open your mouth. Now it's time to talk, because now we have the whole picture. So just a side note to explain why we run into some of those verses that Jesus is telling people to keep things quiet. The reality of being a disciple means that oftentimes we feel like aliens in this world because we belong now to a different kingdom. The temptation can be to withdraw. Create Christian subculture. Hide out. Stay secluded. Stay safe. Jesus says, here's the first principle about the kingdom. It's like a lamp. Would you put it under a basket? Would you put it under a bed? Why would you do that? That makes absolutely no sense. This is what I want you to know about the kingdom. The kingdom is meant to be seen. The kingdom is meant to be talked about. The kingdom is meant to be exposed and bring light into dark places. That's what the kingdom is all about. We are going to move as disciples from aliens to ambassadors. Like the lament in Psalm 137 where the people of God were in exile and their captors insisted that they sing songs. Sing for us the songs of Zion. And they cried, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we do this? We're in a strange land. We're in a strange place. But that is precisely the mission of the church. Paul Williams in his book Exiles on Mission writes it this way. To sing with biblical hope is a prophetic act. We are declaring reality before it is visible because the kingdom is like a lamp set up on a stand. It is supposed to be known. It is supposed to be seen. And that is the role that you and I have as disciples, as the church. 
We see this playing out when we read through the book of Acts. A persecution in Jerusalem breaks out. Believers are forced to go out elsewhere and with them goes the message of the gospel. Philip all of a sudden shows up alongside the Ethiopian's chariot. And Paul is compelled to travel the known world to tell the gospel to everyone that he meets on the road, in a boat, in the marketplace, in a jail cell. It mattered not to Paul wherever he was. He knew the kingdom is like a lamp. The whole scheme, the whole scheme of redemption here is about spread exposure, not security and hiding. I know we're all, I hopefully we're all quick to realize you and I have been called to be lights in a dark world. If you grew up in the church, went to Sunday school, no doubt you learned the song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Won't let Satan blow it out. No. Hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. Why? Because this is a principle of the kingdom. But don't lose the bigger picture of what Mark is writing about here. While we should and know and grasp the reality that you and I, as Christians, if you're here and you're in Christ, you're part of his kingdom, you're one of his lights, we are called, this light has been called to shine in the world. But the principle that Mark is laying out here, see a little bit broader than just my life or just your life. First understand, this is a treasure meant to be found. We've been reading about it being hidden. People unable to see it. And Jesus explained in the parable of the sower, that is a result of the condition of their heart. But know this about the kingdom. God is bringing it, and it is like a treasure that is meant to be found and made known and made to be realized. And secondly, the principle that Mark is laying out here is that everything will be made known. This is important. This is more than just a, a, a push for you and I to evangelize and share our faith with, 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 with the people in our sphere. No, what's being laid out here is that everything about who Jesus is will, in fact, one day be made known to everybody. That's really what's going on here, to say that the kingdom is like a lamp set up on a stand. Today, not everybody sees it. Today, many eyes are blinded to it, but there will come a day. This is the nature of the kingdom. It will come to light. It will all be made known. There will come a day when everyone will see and know and cannot deny that Jesus is the Lord, is the King of kings, is to be worshipped. Everything will be one day made subject to him. This is both encouraging and warning. This is for us to realize this is going to happen. And this should fuel, enliven us with strength and confidence. The message in you, 
this gospel at work in you, this gospel that God wants to use you to bring to others. Know the end of the story. It's all going to come to light. You're, you're not telling a false tale. And you're not telling people that are going to reject it. And then in the end, God just says, everybody just kind of go your own way. Whatever you decided is fine. No, there, there's, there's one grand ending to this story where everything will be made known. Everything about who Christ actually is will be revealed, will come to light. So as much as you and I are in that process of sharing that light with others, we're on the right track and we have hope. We know where it's heading because the kingdom is like a lamp set up on a stand for all to see, to bring light to everyone. Parable number two, every investment brings a return. Let's read the next section of verses. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you used, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each use this phrase from Jesus in their accounts, in their gospel accounts, but not all in the same way. The gospel writers do that often. They take sayings of Jesus and they each use them in different contexts and sometimes they have even different purposes in different gospel accounts. Matthew uses this parable to temper how we judge others. How you judge others is going to be how you yourself will be judged. So think about how you're judging others. Luke uses the phrase a couple times, and one time he, he uses it to encourage generosity. With the measure you give with, that's the measure God is going to give back to you with. So give small, receive small. Give big, receive big. He's encouraging more generosity. Mark is talking primarily about paying attention to Jesus and listening to Jesus. It's about seeking to understand and know who Jesus is. And with that, he's saying the measure that you use is the measure that's going to come back to you. In other words, the more your desire and your heart is to seek who Jesus is, the more he will reveal himself to you. This is similar to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open. But we can, we can reduce that principle down to just basic learning. The more you practice the trombone, the better trombonist you shall be. The more you study botany, the more about botany you will know. It's just basic learning concept. But, but this is talking about something quite different, a different kind of learning, a learning by revelation. Paul talked about this in Galatians 1. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this parable is about. It's not just if you really go to school and try and learn something, you'll learn something and you'll have more knowledge. It's no, if you come 
with a hunger to know Jesus, he will reciprocate by revealing himself to you. The more one listens to him, the more he reveals himself to that person. The concepts are hearing and understanding and knowing. All these things presented with the, with the weight on our hearts of those who are receiving or not receiving in some cases. That's what this section has been about. Disciples hungry to receive and knowing much about Jesus. Others resisting and knowing little about Jesus. We try to teach our children a little bit, uh, a little secret about going to college, how to succeed in a college classroom. And we would tell them, you need to take a genuine interest in the subject of the class you're in, and you need to express that interest to the professor. Ask lots of questions. Interact a lot, participate a lot. Show that professor that you really want to learn what that professor is teaching. It works like magic. Because any teacher, any professor is excited to actually have a student in their class that actually wants to learn what they are there presenting and teaching. And so the reality is, the more genuinely you are interested in what that teacher is teaching, the more that teacher will pour into you according to your desire. With the measure you measure with, it will be measured back to you. And the trick is, if your grade comes down between this and that, if it needs to be tipped one way or the other, that will make the difference. And Jesus is saying something similar. With the hunger you come to me with, that's the measure I'm going to use. The Sermon on the Mount again brings out this principle because in the kingdom, the poor live like they have everything. The hungry ones are the most satisfied. The ones who mourn are the most comforted and the meek. The ones who are not set on conquering others are the ones who end up inheriting the earth. When we come to God with our great need, God fills it. Psalm 81.10, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. In the kingdom of God, you never lose your investment. It always comes back. As you put in, you get out. This is not to be confused with some kind of merit system. It's just as you come with hunger. Many of you have taught, led Bible studies. Some of you have preached sermons. And you know uh, something about what goes on in a situation like that. You, you realize because you're the one that prepared the lesson. Because you pressed in to study that chapter or that section. And you prepared and you delved into it enough so that you could present it and lead others into it. You realize and you're quick to admit you benefited the most from that study. You had listeners that may have participated, hopefully, that have benefited from your preparation, but you always walk away with this keen realization that it's like, 
I got so much out of that. In fact, that very principle right there is, uh, to be honest, is what, is what keeps many people in ministry. It's like, my own soul is so hungry, I love doing this because it feeds my soul so much. So as I seek to feed others, my own soul gets fed. Because with the measure that you use, it gets measured back to you. It's the glorious truth of the kingdom. Your need will never outdo God's supply. And the bigger basket you come with to God, the more he pours out and fills it. So, fair question. What kind of measure are you using with God? Teaspoon? Tablespoon? Cup? Shovel? Wheelbarrow? What we come to God with, empty, he fills. How hungry are you? If we can figure out how hungry you are, I can tell you how satisfied you're going to be. Because that's how the kingdom works. That's a principle of the kingdom. This enlivens us. This encourages us. So when we're hungry, when we're seeking, when we're pressing in, when we're tearing into our Bibles, when we're on our knees in prayer and we're seeking the Lord, oh, we can kind of wink at each other and we kind of know. And at the moment, you feel so desperate. You feel your need is so great. And it's like, I need the Lord. And so you're down and you're low and you're pressing in and you're asking and you're crying out. And yet we can look at each other and we kind of smile. Why? Because I know something. I know something about what's going on here. I know what the Lord is going to do because this is how the kingdom works. With the measure that you come to God with, that's the measure he's going to fill you with. Third parable. The power is not ours, but God's. We have a part to play, but God is the one who brings the increase. Let's read verse 26 to 29. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, it's good to think of sowing seed as sowing God's word into each other's lives, out into the world. It's, it's good to think in terms of evangelism. How are we sharing our faith? How are we bringing Christ into other relationships and expressing this? This is a very good application of the man sowing seed, sowing the word of God into the world, into other people's lives. When it comes to evangelism, there are few things that cause us Christians to become more uncomfortable, more anxious, more guilt-ridden than talking about our responsibility to spread the gospel. If you really want to bring the crowd down, talk about evangelism. Talk about our responsibility to share the gospel. But friends, this 
principle of the kingdom is meant to change all that. And it will transform our lives if we let it. Our part is easy. God's part is great. We are the means. God supplies the power. That's it in a nutshell. All the farmer does is plant the seed. Now in a parable, be careful not to overthink it, not to argue and press into all the details. Jesus is not trying to teach us about farming. He's presenting the farmer as basically having the easiest job in the world. And if you know anything about farmer farming, that's simply not true. You, you, there's a lot of different farmers out there, but not hardworking farmer is, is an oxymoron. They, they don't exist. They all work hard. It is hard work. But in the parable, for the sake of what Jesus is trying to communicate, the, the farmer's job is simple. He's just dropping seed sprinkling some seed around oh maybe he bends over and pokes his finger in the ground drops the seed in a hole and covers it up but the impression the idea here is that the farmer's job is simple it's easy just scatter seed nothing about tilling nothing about plowing nothing about amending soil or fertilizing just sow seed and let seeds do what seeds do. The key word here is that phrase, all by itself. The earth produces all by itself. Greek word, automatos, meaning automatically. Seeds produce automatically. Farmers drop seeds. Seeds have the power. Seeds is where the glory is. Seeds is where all the life is. And seeds work automatically. And knowing this power, knowing that the power is actually in the seed and not in himself, the farmer goes to bed. He sleeps. He sleeps, he gets up. He goes to bed again. This guy sleeps well. This guy doesn't carry the weight of thinking he's going to make the seed grow. Can you imagine the farmer waking up at 2 in the morning, can't sleep, wondering about the seed, and thinking, I don't think those seeds are going to grow unless I stay awake tonight and worry about the seeds. Maybe if I run out into the field and stare at those seeds and talk to them and sing to them and do something to them, then, then, then they'll grow. Farmer doesn't do that. No, but you and I do that all the time, don't we? How many times? How are you sleeping these days, folks? How many times up in the middle of the night? What, what is really going on? I don't, there's several reasons why we don't sleep well. Here's one of them. We don't trust that God is in control. It's just one reason. It's a whole list of other reasons. But isn't it true? If our hearts were truly made known, we get up in the middle of the night, I'm just really not sure God can handle this one. 
I'm not entirely sure that God has this one under control. I think if I fret and I worry and I pout and I complain, I think maybe that'll do it. I think maybe that'll fix this one. How's the kingdom work? Seeds have the power. The farmer sleeps. The farmer goes to bed. The farmer is fine. The farmer is relaxed. The farmer is at ease. The farmer knows where the true life is. The farmer knows where the power really lies. And it's not in himself. He just did his part, just dropped the seed. He's not busy taking soil samples. He's not trying to genetically modify the seeds. He's not testing pesticides and fertilizers. Of course, don't argue with the story. It's simplified, all those things. I mean, there's lots of science in farming. The point of the story is to point out this simple farmer that does one simple act, and he sows seeds. And all that is designed to point to the reality that it's God that brings the increase, not the farmer. He sows with restful confidence because the real power is in the seed itself. We are the means. God is the cause. We can't save anybody. We need to tell everybody. We're the means God uses, but we're not the power that God uses. The power is in his word. The power works in the hearts of men by his word and by his spirit. And that's where the reality of the kingdom, the life of the kingdom lies. So what do we do? Just so well, so regularly, so often, so more, so much with confidence towards God who brings the increase. Take the burden off your shoulders. You can't accomplish the growth. You can sow the seed. And after you've sown well, sleep well. Put your head on your pillow and sleep well. Because you trust. Because you know. You say, because I know something. I know something that you might not know. I know that the real power of God is in the Word of God. And if that Word is being sown, I can sleep well at night with confidence. Because God will be at work. And it's not on me. Fourth kingdom principle. The kingdom starts small but ends big. Let's read the next section about the mustard seed. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Smallest seed, greatest tree. Again, learn how to read a parable. Don't argue with the details. We all know it's not actually the smallest seed, and the mustard bush is not really the grandest 
tree, Jesus is simply using an illustration from real life. The mustard seed has had sort of a proverbial uh, air about it as just being something very tiny. And the principle of the kingdom is that what looks very small, what starts very small, is going to turn into something very grand and very great and very big. Even an apparent insignificant beginning is going to have an impressive end. Jesus is helping us and helping his disciples not to get distracted by all the opposition that is stirring up and coming against Jesus. Many people did not accept him. And Jesus tells this wonderful parable to explain this is how the kingdom works. It might look very small right now. It might look like just a tiny little seed, unimpressive right now. But this is a principle of the kingdom. That seed is going to grow into something great and massive. When he throws in the phrase here, a place for the birds of the air to take their place in its shade. We can read past that pretty quickly, but, but really that is sort of tugging on a couple of prophetic chapters in the Old Testament and really trying to draw attention to some Old Testament images of great trees whose branches provided shade for the birds of the air. Ezekiel 17, Daniel chapter 4, both those chapters talk about a great tree. And these great trees are in reference to great leaders of great nations that end up being large governments that end up being a blessing to many nations. In Daniel, it was Nebuchadnezzar. In Ezekiel, both Babylon, uh, world powers, conquering much of the world and becoming like a great tree that overshadows all kinds of nations. But talked about in very flattering terms, all the leaves are beautiful, the fruit is abundant. Animals gather under the shade of this tree. The birds make their nests in these trees. This grand, great government that is providing oversight and blessing for many nations. That's the picture. But both those trees get cut down. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel cut down to a stump. That's where he gets proud and God brings him down and he's end up crawling through the fields, eating grass like an ox. These trees get cut down to the stump. These are the cities of man. The grand government that is supposed to provide this kind of supply and comfort and safety for many nations cannot do it. But in both those situations, here comes the Lord and speaks and he says, I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain, a sprig. He's going to take a sprig from this tree, and God's going to take it, and he's going to plant it. If you remember in Isaiah, there's going to, uh, chapter 11, there's going to be, uh, out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot will come up. So what used to be this grand tree, this grand city of man, God is going to come, and from that stump, plant just a sprig, just a twig, just a shoot is going to come. Just a mustard seed. 
It's going to plant it. And it's going to grow. And it's going to grow and it's going to come, become something great. We have a sprig in Ezekiel 17. We have a shoot from the stump in Isaiah chapter 11. We have the seed in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the offspring of the woman. All images designed to point to Christ. Christ is that seed. And he comes planted and establishes his kingdom, which will become a great tree, a government. The whole government will be on his shoulders and all the nations of the world will come to him for comfort. He becomes that great tree with beautiful leaves and massive amounts of fruit, supplying for nations, creating shade for all the nations to come under. It's Christ, it's his kingdom that's being talked about. Listen to Ezekiel 17. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. I make the high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. At the time in history, Mark chapter 4, looks very small. We're going to have another point later. Christ is on the cross. You talk about things looking small and defeated at any moment in history. Christ dying on the cross. It looked like all hope was gone. That seed could not have been any smaller, any less impressive. And yet, unless a seed fall to the ground and die, it doesn't produce anything but that seed, seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, it did fall to the ground. He did fall to the ground. He did die on that cross. And that seed grew up to become a great and mighty tree for all the nations. It is that. It will be that. That's where we're going. That's where the whole plan is heading. I have the worship team come on up and I'll close. The kingdom of God is like a lamp. It will bring light to everyone. Today you and I get to reflect that light so that others might see. Knowing this enlivens our lives as Christians. Knowing this makes discipleship fun because we know this is what's supposed to happen and we know that there's a work of the spirit in you and in me that he is going to use to bring light into other people's lives secondly the kingdom comes to us with the measure that we come to it with the greater our need for god and it's not that any one of us actually has a greater need than the next person no it's the, the greater you realize, the more clearly you understand and realize your need is. 
the bigger the basket is that you're coming, the bigger the measure is you're showing up on God's doorstep, pounding on the doors of heaven's gate, saying, Lord, here I am, and my need is great, and I need much. And he welcomes you, and he fills you up. The kingdom grows like a seed. You and I just sow. The real power is in the seed itself. Sowing is meant to be the easy part. So sleep well and know God is in control. God will bring new life. God will use that seed. God will produce new life from it. And lastly, the kingdom is like a small seed that becomes a great tree. However things might look today, we know that Jesus is the one who ultimately has the government on his shoulders. He's a good, he's a great king. Everyone, everyone who lives under his branches thrives. These are the things that enliven the Christian life. These are the fun facts of the kingdom. These are the things that if we know them, if we know something, they make living the Christian life hopeful, joyful, and compel us to continue on. Let's stand together. We'll close with a song.